Welcome to the Arate Podcast, the podcast created to help senior executives and the organizations they lead live up to their full potential. Join us for cutting-edge interviews with leading senior executive and board members across all industry sectors and for practical tips to accelerate your executive career. And now, here's your host, Richard Triggs. Well, everybody, welcome to our second group podcast of the Brisbane Club. Firstly, a big thank you to the Brisbane Club for making this venue available to us and all of the team here. We've got some amazing wine. You know, obviously these conversations will flow a lot better with great wine. And today we are drinking, hang on, I'm going to have to lean over, a 2014 Robert Wheel Riesling Trocken and a Noon Winery Reserve Shiraz. So hopefully that will uh, get the conversation flowing. And my guests today are Ian Sampson. Introduce yourself to the audience, please, Ian. So I'm a company director of several companies, do a little bit of consulting and uh, talk to people about life and what's important. Fantastic. And, you know, you one of the things that you do which is really interesting is you chair one of the CEO Institute syndicates. Yes. So you have the opportunity to talk to a lot of aspiring and incumbent CEOs about what's going on in their world every month. And, and it's the highlight of my month. Oh. <laughs> I might get you to just pull your mic a little closer, Ian. And what about you, Michael James? Um, yes, hello. Um, Richard, Michael James. I'm also a company director and a uh, business advisor, trying to make businesses a little bit more business-like, uh-huh. particularly in the SME world. And when I'm not doing that, I feel very grateful and, and uh, fortunate that I have uh, a relationship with executives where I can help them in terms of preparing them for their next challenges as, uh, as we develop them as future leaders. And I, when I'm not doing that, I'm passionate about being on the tennis court and giving back to the sport of tennis through my board work. So. And today's swimming. And today a bit of swimming, yes. Uh-huh. Trying Very to stay good. fit as we get a little bit older in our middle age. And um, as my father said to me as a youngster, I'll never forget, the grass will never grow under your feet, Michael. And I think some traits that we have as youngsters despite our best efforts to change, stay with us. And unfortunately for me, not sitting, I can't sit still, so I'm always on the move doing something. Uh-huh. So, Good. Yeah. I was talking to somebody the other day, I said, how are you? And he said, on the right side of the grass. The right side. And I thought that that was a good answer. Yeah. Meaning he's not dead yet. Yeah. And uh, how about you, Lucky Last? Oh, Natasha lucky. Howie? Lucky Last? I don't know if my mic, is my mic on? Yeah. Yep, great. So I work with primarily people in Brisbane in the SME space in professional services and Mm -hmm. help them with their identity and helping them create leadership market leadership online so Mm -hmm. yeah and then I do a bit of hypnotherapist uh yeah I do NLP and hypnotherapy as part of what I do yeah but it's more paranormal masters in metaphysical psychology yeah I'm doing my (laughs) PhD in conscious (laughs) business ethics yeah actually in conscious business (laughs) ethics Yes. Wow, that sounds like that would so be, be a fun. heavy topic. P- potentially. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you should have been a star witness at the Royal Commission. Oh, maybe. <laughs> oh, well, why don't we start with you, Natasha? What's okay. been going on in your world? You know, what, have, what have, things have you been up to and what's been piquing your interest? Okay, so what's been fun for me is I've been doing a lot of strategic planning with my clients for 2019. Mm-hmm. So they're professional services, all different types of professional services, industries from luxury travel companies to 
uh, accountants and all sorts of things. So um, the thing that has been really interesting in when we work in with more advanced topics is micro moments. Micro moments. Micro moments in all the right. customer journey, and so how do you, and how that changes customers' decision making and just with the whole online world really ramping up in 2018. So there's been changes in Google where they've moved away from their search uh, criteria. So where they've, they've been searched, where Google crawls desktops, they now crawl mobiles instead. Yeah. So mobile uh, usage is on the rise. So it's up to around 60% for most of the clients that I'm working with in professional services. So right. um, yeah, everybody's on their mobile. There's a lot of immediacy required in decision making so which is which is another potential point of uh, discussion mm. so yeah so is micro moment your term or is that the term that's actually a google term it's a google yeah term. google coined the phrase so what, of the, micro what does it mean specifically so it's basically what are people doing when they're online so right. are they in and in the customer journey so there's I want to find out information moments, there's I need to make a decision moments, or there's uh, how do I buy what I want moments. Mm. So there's a number of different types of types of moments. But okay. uh, yeah, so it's just really trying to get in immediate information to people who are uh, wanting in, want to make decisions mm -hmm. or potential clients. So. Well, you're on the board of a few professional services companies, Michael. So uh, is this the sort of stuff you talk about around the board table? <coughs> I love the concept of micro moments um, and what customer orientation that would create. Mm. Unfortunately, a lot of, unfortunately, uh, and fortunately, a lot of work I do um, is equipping the organisation around more things like governance succession, ownership succession, leadership succession, and often um, there is so much internal focus and energy that we lose sight of those opportunities to give micro moments or macro moments mm. to a lot of our clients. Mm. Um, so um, yeah, what I've, in the work I've been doing, unfortunately, it's been um, really working on how the directors and the most senior people in the company can actually regain why they are in business and start externalising more of what they're doing and stop having meetings for meetings and you know, all the internal stuff. So. Yeah, which is really important in terms of identity because the identity starts from the top. So if you're looking at, at brand identity and how customers experience and create micro moments through the journey, it all starts with the heart and soul of uh, the leadership team. Mm. Mm. Beautiful. So are you, are you pulling in thoughts about design from a customer perspective? Design, as in <coughs> design on uh, materials and marketing collateral uh, things? Or... or Process design. Process design. And, yeah, and, yeah. So customer, yeah, mapping out the customer journey. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. So. Just pulling Mike a little closer to you. You're a very <coughs> gentle spoken uh, elder statesman. Thank you. We need to make sure we capture your tremendous Every wisdom. Every pearl. Yes. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So what what's actually going on with the customer's thinking process and what's their decision making process in terms of their problem their own problem solving process? And so how, how do we contribute towards that as a professional services firm to keep them informed and, and up to date and helping them make decisions? Because immediacy and micro moments can also lead to not so great decisions sometimes mm, as well. Yeah. So there's that understanding that balance. And 
and, br and bringing them through from a micro moment to macro moments, as, as you said before. So. I was just reflecting further on the challenge with professional services, I'm not sure if you've seen this, where um, by virtue of being a master of the technical craft in which you are <coughs> uh, in business to exhibit, that it's often working against the very skills needed to understand the, what really is behind the client's need. Exactly. How, yeah. do, you, how do you go about, in your experience, that yeah. the emotional rather than yeah. the logical value that you can Yeah, it's a really wonderful deliver. process yeah. where I actually get them, and this is part of what we can do with, with NLP, which is a tool, a mind tool, essentially, but getting them to step into... Uh, the customer's mind, if you like, so step into the mind of your clients and really understand what, what is their pain points, what, what keeps them awake at night, what are the problems with professional services that they've been experiencing and how can that be solved in a different way and communicated to your customers in a way that's meaningful to them. So, um, and, and really taking... That requires empathy. It does, it really does. It is, and as you say, absolutely, it's very, it's an emotional experience. Right. Yeah, or it can be quite an emotional experience. Gee, I haven't um, been trained for empathy. <laughs> I, I, I didn't get to that lecture when that was on, like, you know, yeah. it's tough, isn't it? Yeah. Are these the kind of things that are occupying the CEO minds that you're dealing with? No. Well, I, I asked the question about the customer design thing because I think that's a huge issue that's come out of things like the Royal Commission into yeah. banking and finance industry. Absolutely. Um, and I, I don't know that many organisations have actually got their head around what that is actually going to involve for them. Mm. So this, this sense that the banks seem to have of thinking about customer design from the perspective of what can we make the customer do mm. that will serve our interests mm. is a completely different take to what you're describing, Natasha. Yeah. yeah. And I've actually seen it implemented in action. Uh, I can't mention the, the name of the company because it is, it's not, it's a huge company. It's an aggregate, a very um, substantial aggregate site in, uh, a, a website in, um, in Australia that's Sydney based. But uh, the way they design their customer service experience, they had their whole team on walls like this. So for the, you know, just like the really, really long walls and they literally get the whole team to map out every micro moment that the customer is experiencing from the perspective of the customer. And it's absolutely incredible to see these entire teams working together on that customer journey. And as a, as a result, that company is number one by a country mile um, in their industry. So their, their competitors can barely touch them. They're, they're doing their best, but it really they really are dominating the market. Wow. So I think, Absolutely, and people who mm. can do that and who who turn it completely upside down, the whole experience upside down from mapping it from that top level down to really understanding the, the heart and soul of the customers and what they want. And are the micro moments based on the um, say somebody interrogating something on their web page, yeah. or is it, it talking be. to a real life person on the other end of the phone? Everything. Or? Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Everything. So. Uh, yeah, there's uh, it, you know, incredible software that you can use to see how long customers are staying on a particular the, you know, heat mapping software and, and what they're doing and yeah, so... Uh, I like, particularly like the mindset, the, the conversation around what's behind what comes out of the client's mouth because mm. 
we are for too long in, in a lot of SME world mm. uh, responding to what the customer asks and not really truly empathising with what's behind the, yeah. the need. And, yeah. and often our feelings as a client around what we want is hard to put words around anyway. So if you can help bridge that journey for them, great. Absolutely. Sounds tremendous. And I think the people that do that, the, the professional services that do that are going to come out as the market leaders by far as we've seen in other other industries. So, uh, yeah, it's uh, it very in the not-for-profit space, particularly those dealing with the challenge of NDIS, you know, where they're suddenly, mm. the client has got the right to spend who they, their disability services money with the provider that they choose to. And this is even more relevant, wouldn't you agree, Ed? I think so, yeah. Um, I haven't got a great deal of experience with NDIS organisations particularly, but, I think the whole uh, not-for-profit sector is going through a real revolution on a number of fronts, and that's one of them. Another one is the pressure from organisations like the ACNC to get organisations to amalgamate and to do things in a different way that is very different from the underlying ethos of many not-for-profits. Uh, that's another force. The whole government pullback on... Uh, support and contracting and um, long-term arrangements for funding is another uh, seismic shift I think that's occurring in the whole sector so there's probably three or four different things that in my thinking about next year are starting to develop a bit more in terms of the things that I think ought to be conversations around board tables mm. because mm. we probably might have a year of grace next year but I don't know that it'll last much longer than that. So do you think a discussion about micro-moments is a board table discussion or is that more within the, the actual ELT of the, the organisation to discuss? Well, I think it's a good example of the sort of thing that boards or bo individual directors and boards collectively ought to be aware yeah. of and then they ought to have a view about it and then they ought to be encouraging or discouraging their managers to get on and develop something <coughs> or investigate it or come up with something or whatever. I don't know that they ought to be doing the work themselves, but no, no. they ought to have the have the conceptual understanding. Of it. Yeah. It's a bit like the things that developed in in during this year with things like um, artificial intelligence and robots and yes. you know, all of all of that stuff with uh, the, in the digital area. Yeah. Um, directors can't know the detail of that, but they do know to know the conceptual mm. understanding. Yeah. And that's, um, yeah, so artificial intelligence does tie in, intelligence ties in with micro moments because especially with that immediacy that's required now in the, in the digital world. So it can really help support uh, those micro moments and if they're mapped out correctly. It's very and uh, one of the things that I've been involved in that's connected with that, with the AI and machine learning is what's going to be the workforce of the future oh, yeah. and no surprise to anyone who's been in business long enough to know that um, you know th the workforce will need skills that from too many years we've been talking about being soft skills um, mm -hmm. but it'll just as a as a nice thing to have but in in the world of AI and machine learning it's going to be absolutely um, a requirement and it's been interesting for me personally uh, recently having a group of individuals reflect on that future workforce environment um, and things like um, your own personal brand becoming more and more important mm -hmm. yeah. okay. um, 
having a network of trusted professionals in your network for your career, not relying on your employer to have a network for you for success. Yep. Mm. Um, clearly the development of others and giving of others through better coaching, mentoring, enabling, which a lot of the kids coming through with AI and machine learning, I, I, I think is still a bridge for them to see how I can impart and help others and in so doing over time uh, develop myself. So some of these concepts, um, um, you know, I, I think is pretty pretty exciting, but uh, the the old model of being employed, uh, I think, is going to be really challenged in this new mm. world. So, yeah. Mm. And it's, yeah, with, with that, it's really the almost coming to entrepreneurs that are, you know, surrounded by those mentors. I've, uh, I've recently a colleague of mine, um, and this might go into, uh, has come across a, a narcissistic leader. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> what's, what's a narcissistic leader, please? I don't know. You might be able to help me with that one. But, um, and and the, it is the, the consultants and the people that, that that person has around them that has truly helped to implement change. And in the, they're a senior executive, so they've really needed to, to they've been in a pivotal role to assist with with transition because there's a lot of mergers and acquisitions within the organization yes so, yeah it's uh, very very interesting yeah interesting. It's just the most beautiful gentleman thank you so michael what about you you know uh what sort of things have been uh, occupying your mind <coughs> well i um thank you <coughs> in terms of the big end of town we often talk about that as bigger corporates uh, I'm I've had a um, I've had the pleasure of helping um, a few larger corporates um, deal with what you may be surprised to be back to basics which is the busyness of just being in a corporate even in 2018 despite uh, what we talk about in terms of effectiveness before efficiency mm. despite um, what a lot of executives and boards will say about culture, they're still measuring satisfaction and engagement as a surrogate for culture and wondering why it's failing miserably. They are busy being busy rather than with the you know, tyranny of that urgent stuff again, rather than being able to, to focus on the more important. And, and the real disappointment for me personally when I see these executives in some of these larger organisations is... Um, you know, and one is the financial sector, so no surprise, decision-making going straight back up the tree rather than devolved to a level where it's it's best exercised. Mm. To the point where, you know, people are being made redundant for numbers and FTEs and costs. And the very managers or regional executives responsible for those very people aren't even given the context of what in the hell's going on. Um, as as example, so I, I'm seeing so this. You're, so can I just ask? So, uh, first point you said was they're looking at employee engagement as being a reflection of culture. So what you what I hear is you're, you're saying, well, a company says we've got an employee engagement score of seventy five percent, therefore we've got a good culture. And or it's gone up, so therefore it's good. They don't necessarily mean the same things. No, because a lot of these larger. In my experience, and again, it's a generalisation, so it's not true, clearly, for everyone. But um, in my experience, um, 
in the last 12 months or so this year, uh, you know, a lot of cultures won't tolerate having a bad score in a survey because mm-hmm. they can't, they just don't trust mm. the, the system, number one. Number two is if engagement goes up, what's that mean? Or satisfaction? It's, to me, it's it's got very little to do with culture. Right. Um, it's, you know, um, boards are still struggling, in my view, with what executives have been dealing with for years, which is... Um, you know, the best surrogate for culture, in my view, is measuring leadership impact. Role clarity, you know, are you given, you know, um, uh, enough training development to do your job effectively? Satisfaction can come in a number of forms, but the best surrogate, I think, is around measuring the impact your leadership has in your particular business. And, um, and by the way, people closer to it than I will know better. What was the satisfactory engagement surveys of the CBA uh, in recent times? Really you know, high. Really <laughs> high. Yeah. But yet the culture of tolerated behaviour that one would suggest is not high performance. Mm. Culture of chronic ease was the phrase, wasn't it? <laughs> wow. And then, and then the other comment you made was there are line managers being asked to make redundancies, but they aren't given the context as to why that is. And this is the, this is the biggest disappointment for me, but equally the opportunity, you know, in my capacity to come in and, and help, quite frankly, with the adverse one dealing with the adversity of dealing, working within a larger organisation, and two, how to how to negotiate or navigate change through the headwinds of their own cultures. Mm hellishly difficult given decisions being made in these big corporates and some of us have been in and around some of these to understand why but to not give true context across your organisation and be making decisions beyond a level of what I call competence is really disempowering you know and the financial sector is really going to struggle um, in, in this whole um, I think there's a belief system that still need to be challenged, that the more we can centralise and control, the safer mm. the decisions. We can't tolerate mistakes, but yet we're in an environment where if you're not prepared to be wrong, you can't co- adapt and be innovative. So well, it's all about de-risking, isn't it? Isn't it? And, yeah, and the risk management ends up paralysing everybody. And, and the you know residual risk, arguably, in my view, is higher than it would have been otherwise. So what do you see as the opportunities of this? Uh, I see a lot of divestment. I see organisations, or we've seen that with the big banks, to divest uh, some of their advisory businesses, you know, and get back to basics. But in big corporates, I think there's going to be opportunity for divestment and therefore smaller businesses really, Mm. or parts of these larger businesses, really embracing um, their core competence. Because it's really hard... In my view, I've had a little bit of experience in my career with this, that when you try to bolt on too much within the one brand and the one mm. culture, really, it really does stretch mm. the friendship mm. <laughs> within the organisation, so particularly in these adverse you know, times of volatility, mm. ambiguity, etc. So they're going back to their core business and, and non-core assets or, or businesses that don't align with their core mission um, using it as an opportunity to shed those. I believe that's the mm. opportunity. Right. They may or may not. Some obviously will for you know more obvious risk mitigation reasons. But I think there is a great opportunity mm. here. Um, 
But uh, gee, um, I feel for the executives that are, you know, really just, you know, a, a lot of these cultures, quite frankly, and we should, you know, we can talk about it now. Um, I dare say is it's a good time to have a conversation. Yes, I'd better have another <laughs> glass of wine. They buy, they bypass their cultures by just promoting higher salaries and bonuses. You know, they really hide behind, allow their cultures to not flourish because mm. people are really victim of the paycheck, unfortunately, mm. in my view. Not all, but um, particularly some of these larger businesses. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, uh, so that's one thing I've been involved in. Okay. Getting back to basics, how do we get back to the important, not so urgent, and, and get greater meaning? And mm. how do you say no to your colleagues and to the, you know, the, the political right. will of larger organisations to say, no, actually, no, I'm not going to do that, right. you know, without it being a, a career-limiting move, not too easy. Have you read that book? I think it's called The Importance of Saying... Uh, uh, what is it? About <laughs> telling people to F-off? F-off. Oh, yeah, yes. Uh, yes. What's yes. that book called? Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah. yeah I, I know the orange one. Oh, The Importance of Not Giving an F. Yeah, yeah that's right. it. The art, the arts, oh, the right. subtle art of not the, giving an F. The subtle art of not giving an F, yeah. that's what it is. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Uh, yeah, compulsory not, reading, by the is. way. Yeah, no. <laughs> Have you read that again? No. You <laughs> <laughs> I can't even bring myself to say the word. Oh, really? He's a gentleman, Richard. He's a gentleman. It's I not know. like you. Oh, <laughs> that I am. <laughs> so, are there any good tools or? Well, it's you know, it, to me, it is back to some basics. Really, mm. it's uh, you know, it's the power in the collective, not the individual. It's the understanding the power principles of you know what happens when you do give power away by working ridiculous hours and your health suffers and everything else and power is something that if used to for good for greater influence um, collectively um, and be more strategic in how you might adopt a change process mm-hmm. you know to me it's back to those basics um, but gee, it's not easy uh, in some of these corporates that are facing, you know, short-term money, short, you know, share price, uh, stakeholders. So what, so what do you think about this thing that came out of the Royal Commission of this phrase called the, the board's responsibility for setting the tone at the top? Yeah, that, that's wonderful, isn't it? Um, yeah. it it's a good debate because um, I'm rather as we all are being in that executive leadership um, board leadership space passionate about you dial up culture whether your, your culture happens whether you like it or not but the more you invest in that leadership you'll get more of what you do want um, boards I think still struggle with this whole how do I make better decisions by investing in the dynamic of the board let alone individual directors needing to know everything about the business so there's a thing that I think uh, the Royal Commission has got wrong, and I think, on balance, it's been a wonderful, wonderful intervention in Australian corporate life. But yep. uh, to me, there was a confusion in the Commission's mind, or at least in the interim report, about this notion of uh, what they started to ally with these references to the tone at the top. Yeah. About confusing. Uh, considerations and responsibilities that the board have for monitoring the working environment with what is really going on in the culture Mm. and to me culture is a much deeper uh, 
solid, almost visceral kind of uh, thing that exists, and that's the stuff that you can't play with by mucking around with the remuneration system or having mm. the managing director put out a new statement of vision and values or whatever. And the thing that I am sort of a little bit hopeful that the, uh, the commissioner will come out with in the final report is pointing the way to the importance of banks really getting in touch with their real culture. Mm. So the banks as a group all have different cultures because the they're all different organisations, but the, the whole notion that a bank is the same as the Salvation Army or General Electric or the Brisbane Club mm. or whatever, it just, just people aren't getting their heads around the importance of that at all. Mm. And, um, yet, you know, the one thing I've been thinking about, Natasha, you know, it'd be good for you to sort of give some feedback, is that if you were to go to a CEO and say to them, what is your personal vision and values? What is your personal mission, you know? I, I think if you asked 100 CEOs that, 95 would, wouldn't have an answer. That's right. Mm. Including me, mm. yeah. you know? And you, you do a lot of work in that, don't yeah, you? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And um, I, I'd be really interested in your thoughts, Ian, on whether uh, between the connection of the board to the, the senior leaders and, and their, like, is that or, or connection or not? Um, and how that that ties together, but um, it it definitely does start with with vision and and for people to invest into a culture, it really is about buying in, into the vision. And when there is uh, kind of brings it ties it down to micro moments. And I I know it sounds bizarre, but everything that everybody does, people are starting to think more. They're starting to think more what how this particular time. This, they're valuing their time more. So this particular moment in time, how valuable is it to mm, me? Mm. And and what can I achieve with this? So um, that's why you see this huge transition to from these huge corporates, and that's where I think there's a, a huge opportunity, particularly in financial services, to go from um, having uh, having those structures which are, you know, not on the pulse with the customer, to uh, different entrants coming into the marketplace that are smaller but they care about the customer and they're local so they're local they care about micro moments so I think it'll be exciting to see what happens as the transition occurs to see so so for example um, you know a good example is Uber so pre previously when you used to catch a taxi Uber is very local it's very personal um, compared to going through a, a systemic licensed cab model to yeah I just want to drive my car and spend my time with uh, talking to people and having that as an additional source of income and because and, uh, I do like Ubers so it can, it's very fulfilling for them so you get all of these amazing people that you have conversations with who are in the corporate world going to drive Ubers because they're feeling a little bit more fulfilled mm. doing that mm, mm. Um, because they're having these micro moments with people they're connecting there so I think um, it really does come down to that that connection and if there is a disconnect between true vision and what people are doing and, and misalignment with what they're doing every day um, engagement is is obviously going to uh, 
be different and, and they're going to seek elsewhere that, that fulfilment. Mm. So where are people looking for their fulfilment then? Is it, is it a part-time job like Uber? Is it mm. hobbies? Is it, yeah. I, had a, I had a really, really good example of this. came home to me a couple of weeks ago. I go to a local gym and I happened to be mentioning to the personal trainer that there's three or four of the trainers that I see every time I'm there and they never say good day. Right. And I just remarked about it in passing because the trainer that I'm working with always says hello to people around him. Anyway, uh, unbeknownst to me, he went to a staff meeting and talked with his colleagues about it and now they've all <laughs> collectively described And it's a bit like a Bunnings experience right. where, you know, they all say good day to you and all that sort of thing. To the point it's probably really annoying. Oh, well, I wish I wouldn't say good day no, to you. No, no, yeah. But, <laughs> but Not it's yet been really interesting to see the impact that it's had on, mm. the, on the other um, clients or members of the, of the mm. gym because they're all connecting now because it's almost like they've been given permission to say to one another, say good day to one another, mm. because it's being led by the staff. Yeah. And, and I don't know whether that's an example of a micro Yeah, it's a great, not, it's a perfect yeah. example. Right. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. yeah. I, uh, I, was, I think um, coming back to two of the points is people are looking for community mm, in absolutely. places like Facebook, yeah. where they'll say, oh, you know, I've got a thousand friends, <coughs> but they don't really have a community. You know, because everybody's posting up their best selves, and so most people who look at their feeds from Facebook they end up getting depressed because everybody's life seems awesome in mm. comparison to theirs. And then also in terms of Michael, your point about you know people trying to manage their time, and because it's such an instantaneous thing now, email comes in, people want a response. You know, it wasn't that long ago that somebody would send you a letter. You know, in my professional career, and if you didn't reply with a letter for a week, that was fine. Yep. And then it became a fax, and if you replied in a day, now if you don't reply to a, you know, a, a, an SMS or a, um, an email within sort of five minutes, they think you're rude. Yep. And um, so, Bing, 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 and then your Facebook, Bing, Bing, mm. Bing, and Instagram Messenger, Bing, Bing, you know, and so all of a sudden you go, man, I'm absolutely and utterly knackered. Which and is, yet I've not done anything. Yeah, and I think that, which is why the, you know, if, just to finish with the financial sector, if you, from a corporate point of view, the Royal Commission, if for those that really get, we're going to do business the way our clients want to do it. Exactly. Yeah. And moderate the member or stakeholder equity versus ownership equity equation. Um, they will be more and more successful. And th I think that's where you know, not only some of these startups and internet-based um, connectors mm. of financial services and others, mm. but even the mutuals, those that are really reinventing themselves, mm. I reckon, will yeah. do tremendously well as a result yeah. of all this yeah. because all this that we're hearing around the Royal Commission, quite frankly, the a lot of the mutuals are being sucked up in what doesn't really relate to them. Yep. They're already doing good stuff with their clients and they're already... So I think there's a, there's a real good upside here around balancing the equation. Um, the other point I was going to make earlier, just on the corporates, um, uh, many years ago there was a book called The Corporation and mm. I read it and read it and, I, and it came out as a documentary. Yeah. And 
a lot of my executive coaching, I still point executives back, back to, listen, just watch this. Wow. Because um, I think all, a lot of us, particularly the younger execs that have grown up, have forgotten why the corporation started in the first place. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like a person, when it was given the rights of a person to borrow money and to take risk and to be a good corporate citizen for good or evil, I think it's where we're seeing, although individually you might have, as executives and board members, an individual vision or purpose, it is no wonder still today, collectively, we can still have behaviour that's pretty ordinary as a corporation. Lower risk in a smaller organisation, I dare say, but can still happen. <coughs> so, yeah, um, for those that haven't, um, dear listeners... Um, so give us the abridged version. Why was the corporation created? Well, you know, you... you Locally, you know, we couldn't afford the piece of infrastructure. We couldn't afford that bridge uh, or that building, so we would, you know, pool our funds to get something built in communities, and and um, you know, it was a, a means of uh, you know getting things done. And I think the turning point, as the documentary in the book talks to, is um, is the moment the corporation was given the same rights as a person. Yeah. Yeah, well, it was a good moment for a lot of reasons. It allowed corporations to flourish yeah. and, to, and mm. to separate the risk. The corporate veil, so to speak. The downside is it's not always, as people are, not always for good. Mm. And so do you think that that model is largely irrelevant now? I think it's... Uh, un- well, it's a good question. It's, it's another question. great question. Yeah. Um, because a lot of organisations, and we started this conversation today with professional firms who are largely structured, well, well were largely structured less these days around uh, operating through trusts mm. for tax purposes and, you know, helps beneficiaries in terms of asset protection. Um, hellishly poor at retaining value, dealing with growth, dealing with reinvestment, dealing with change of ownership and succession and... and um, so the corporation, the corporate model, I, in my view, is still the best of the bad bunch. Mm. And, uh, there's not another one there yet. Um, mm. It was what Ken, Ken Henry was trying to point to in his evidence to the Royal Commission to say that we've probably passed the, the time of the corporation and mm. we need to now have different responsibilities where directors aren't just responsible to shareholders. They have, mm. they for years, they've had to acknowledge that they have responsibilities to a whole bunch of other stakeholders and now the the law needs to be changed to reflect that that there is this diversity of uh, of stakeholders and and we owe, owe duties to a whole range of people not just their owners yeah. and, what, and from what i understand about that is there will be a drive now particularly in the, in the major corporations that they will say you can be on our board but you can't be on any other boards mm. And we will pay you substantively more because of the fact that you can only commit to one board. But this idea of being on four, five, six boards um, uh, with that level of responsibility to the stakeholders that you're describing, you know, Ian, and, and your personal liabilities and so on, it's just not going to work anymore. Yeah. Are you hearing that too? Um, I haven't heard it in terms of limiting it to one. Right. Um, I, I don't know that anybody can do more than one or two um, ASX yeah. uh, listed 
listed right. boards. Particularly when, coming back to your point, Ian, around culture, that anyone, listed or unlisted um, board director, in my view, should be have enough capacity and enough competence to be able to work, um, what's the word, get a feel for the culture that you will never do if you just rock up to a board meeting. Yeah. Mm. And that takes a bit of effort, a bit of time, a bit of empathy, a bit of opportunity to get across the organisation you've got a responsibility for. You just can't do that if you've got a yep. mm. too many. Mm. And if we stick with that sort of banking thing, I mean, one of the things I find fascinating, I'm a, I bank with the NAB. The NAB have just opened this magnificent branch on Queen Street. Absolute state of the art. You know, everything you could possibly imagine. I walk past there every day, there's nobody in there. Right. Mm. You know, and yet, and again, um, this is probably more hearsay rather than direct evidence, the people who are actually using branches, those people living out in remote communities, you know, those branches are being closed because they're not getting enough patronage. And me sitting here as a complete numpty who doesn't work in their environment at all, that seems pretty obvious to me. And yet that has been happening a lot, you know. So surely at board level, um, uh, they should be able to ask the practical, you know, dumb punter questions to really, you know, understand, is this actually the right thing? Is this what we really should be doing or not? There might be an alternative reason for doing what they've done. I, I, you know, I don't know what it might be. Hypotheticalizing for a minute, mm. it might be something to do with some political agenda that they have, mm. or s mm. some uh, turf war between them and the other banks, or mm. who knows what yeah. it is. It, but yeah. it, it it might look like it's just poor uh, poor servicing of customers, or or that the customers aren't using it. But mm. that may be just a subsidiary thing. Mm. Who, who knows? That's it's so complex these days that mm. it's sometimes hard to know what the real agenda is. So let's move on to you, Ian. What's sort of going on in your can, world? Can I ask oh, Ian sure. a question? Yeah, Is that yeah, okay? Absolutely. So, Ian, I know that you're like you've got empathy <coughs> right from you know from the customer experience right through to large organisations in terms of culture, um, right through to board level. So you've literally got each you know each side of the coin um, and all of the the gaps in between mapped out. How, well, uh, you, you've experienced it. So you, you've, you've been on the, the smaller level, on the customer experience level as a customer. You've been uh, you know, in, implementing culture change within large organisations. You, you've advised senior executives for, you know, for over many, many years. So how, and you can see that there's all of this change and all of this opportunity coming. How do you see that from you know, from the board level. So how do you see those gaps being bridged from a board level right through to um, a customer level when there's so much change happening? I'm not is sure that, that this question? is going to be <laughs> the answer. But I think in part it goes back to boards having the courage to have some deep conversations about nice. what their culture really is and understanding what culture really is as a concept. So when when the interim uh, report came out from Commissioner Hayne, I, I read it uh, and made a lot of notes about it and thought a lot about it and uh, you know, shared some thoughts with other people about it. 
and, and the more I delved into it, the more I understood that there's these confused notions of what culture really is. And I talked a little bit about this before. And then, um, in a in a moment of weakness, I went to uh, that great reference um, source, Google, and uh, <laughs> and Googled culture. And I came across this really interesting article about um, the origin of culture. So my understanding in, from organisational design perspectives is that cultures are at the very deepest uh, levels of, of how an organisation is set up and runs and endures over many years. And, and that's why the Salvation Army is different from NAP. Uh, and the, a way of understanding that goes to uh, understanding it through archetypes. And, yes. And, you know, Fascinating of, stuff. Yeah, a little bit of understanding about un, trying to understand cultures from the perspective of the Greek gods. So, mm. uh, a culture like uh, the Salvation Army is probably reflecting a culture that can be described around um, uh, Athena, mm -hmm. the, the the wife of Zeus, who was caring and uh, wanted to make sure that every, there was harmony and all that sort of stuff. And that's very different from. The culture I grew up in, the steel industry, which was based around the, the gods, whoever, whatever his name was, who was down in the depths of Hades, you know, bashing metal, right. and there was heat and smoke and all the rest of it. So understanding that there is different cultures is absolutely fundamental. Then in this thing I found in Google that uh, the Greeks had a really nifty understanding of all this, and they actually had two, uh, two principal parts of each year that reflected these understandings and one was called the festival of Dionysus I think Dio Dionysius, yep, Dionysus. which occurred in March and it was an opportunity for all of the Greek citizens to come together and they had uh, a couple of weeks of plays and theatre and uh, literary readings and a lot of the stuff that we now have handed down to us originated from these festivals that occurred in March. Uh, and that was a cultural event. So it, mm. it kept the culture of Greece growing and developing and flourishing. Then in September there was another festival, I think, or a feast or something else that was much more cultish, which was uh, around... I think it was Elysius, if I can remember it correctly. And this was this coming together of all of the citizens of, of Greece and having this Bacchanalian um, it orgies and hallucinogens being consumed right. and, and <laughs> rituals and, you know, all the rest of it. Richard's going now. <laughs> He's off to no, the... I'm, I'm, too, I'm too busy in the cult of Narcissus staring into the pool of water at my beautiful reflection. And that, that was, but the thing about it was that was much more cultish. That was about the tribe. That was about yeah. the community, you know, the community sticking together, yeah. following the same kinds of things year after year after year. And there was interplay between the two things. But Would the, the same people participate in both? Yes. Because I would look at that as it's almost like the changing of the seasons. Mm. You That's know, right. You're coming into yeah. summer and it's all loud and out and fire and, and party time. Mm. And then it's coming autumn into winter and like you're a spring more solstice. introspective. Yep. And mm. 
Yeah. And one of the Greek philosophers at one stage said, you know, this was the greatest gift that Greece gave to the world, was this idea that there are two sides of human nature, there are two Beautiful. sides of how we function, there are two ways that we can participate in community life. One is cultish, it's fixed and it's dogmatic and it's ritualistic and it's, uh, it's static. The other is progressive and growth and oriented and creative and innovative and moves, moves wow. the whole culture forward. Now, if, if boards could have a conversation around some basic understanding like that and say, well, what does that say to us as a bank mm. about how we operate and how we run, you know, just to jump to something that mm. has come out, you know, about remuneration systems. Yeah. The, the implications of that are, are enormous. But Absolutely. to come to simplistic ideas that, oh, well, we'll just change the remuneration system and we'll knock the MD off a million dollars this year because he hasn't Respect performed him. well at the Royal Commission. Right. It's just nonsense. Mm. And do you think that's because these boards are largely male, stale and pale? Oh, I think that's a part of it. Right. Yeah. And there's, a, and there's, without being class, entering into a class war about it, there's a, there's a, there's elitism. Mm -hmm. There's, uh, there's lack of diversity. There's uh, privilege. There's, uh, there's questions of ethics, all roiling around in this. That. But I really guess they're not even hearing. But you know, there's no AICD course on. How to be an effective director by learning about the Greek gods and parties. I love that. That's you an know. incredible me metaphor. Absolutely mm -hmm. incredible. Awesome. Yeah. Yep. And and people learn through metaphor and, and storytelling. Yep. It's an ancient art that we yep. really miss. So uh, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. I think that's amazing. I, yeah. I wouldn't want to criticise the Institute of Coming because I think they've done a great job. But there's a, there there are going to be big implications from the Royal Commission for organisations like AICD in terms of how they do what they do and how mm. they focus in perhaps one narrow part of the, a much broader spectrum. Mm. And these sorts of issues about how people work and live and uh, act as consumers or clients or customers or whatever and how they interact with the organisation, they're, they're going to be huge topics mm. for boards to get their heads around in the next two or three years. Wow, that's and if amazing. we can replace engagement and satisfaction on a, on a board's dashboard of culture to leadership impact, we know we're making progress. Mm. Yeah. yeah, I love the um, Greek gods of management and philosophies. It's great. Mm. Because it's all relatable, isn't it? You can really, so on a subconscious level, everybody relates to stories. So we, we, we grow up with fairy tales. So on a subconscious level, we can we you know our neurological pathways are already which is which, which is why which basically. is why understanding as an executive or a director in your own organisation what narrative is being mm. run, what stories are being yeah exactly you know exactly what is the water cooler story today and you know it is um, it's hellishly difficult though in in my view with business owners and directors who have been promoted based on largely the task side of the equation, not the people side. And yeah. But anyway. Well, let's move on from culture, perhaps we'll come back to it a bit later in the conversation. Ian, what's happening for you? What are you what's going on in your world? What are you thinking about at the moment? Uh, well, perhaps something that ties back to what Michael was saying before. Last, last week, I had the privilege of spending half a day with a group of mining executives in Perth 
and uh, I had, was completely discombobulated because they asked <laughs> me to talk about myself, which I am loath to do, and <laughs> so, so I prepared a whole heap of stuff and tried to wangle the conversation as best I could away from me. And uh, the, one of the things that really came out of it that I goes back to something that you said, Natasha, before, was uh, they really got the importance of having alignment between what the organisation says are its values mm. and what they really are. So mm. that's an old thing about values in use and values uh, espoused. But they also got the importance of having their own values aligned with the organisation's yeah. values. Nice. And uh, after I left, the guy who was facilitating it, a wonderful uh, expert, got them to do some work together to make sure that there were uh, understandings between them all about their values uh, and how individually and collectively they aligned with the organisations. And they ended up um, forming a pact, and, and to go back to cult culture, probably a cultish kind of thing, yeah. a pact about how they would hold one another to account when they saw discrepancies arising between um, wow, their, own, their own values and the organisation's values. And I think that's the sort of stuff that is really going to make a difference in the latter part of this decade. Mm. So that was uh, something that I really mm. enjoyed. And could I say something about another interesting thing that I've I'd love you to. Today I had the privilege of going to an organisation called HOTA, Home of the Arts. It's at Blundell, Blundell in, on the back of the Gold Coast, uh, or just back from the beach at Southport. Uh, so it's a new organisation that's been established by the Gold Coast City Council and the state government and various organisations. And it's designed to uh, look really at things like rock music in the 1980s. There's an exhibition there at the moment. Uh, they've got this huge auditorium where they're bringing an outdoor auditorium where they're bringing people together for concerts they've got a whole bunch of other facilities in place with you know just combining the arts and community together in a really um, Gold Coasty kind of way yeah but I was so impressed by uh, both the enthusiasm of the people that were there the professionalism of it and the freshness of it was just Brilliant. great Brilliant. just great gee Red or white, Michael? Oh, white would be great, thank you. <laughs> Can I just say, that red is spectacular. Well, that good. That Shiraz is... It, it, it hits the, the Howie approval. Oh, well, yeah, I'm you pleased. know how difficult uh, that is. That's 2001, <laughs> Noon Winery Reserve Shiraz. Thank you. And uh, uh, the cellar here at the Brisbane Club is often voted best cellar in Australia. I can see why. So, Ian, I have to ask, Amazing. you know, is there some hidden musical talent or singing talent? Absolutely uh, none. none. <laughs> <laughs> We had a, on my last You were quick panel, to answer yeah. that, so I don't believe you. <laughs> it's a short answer. We had, we, on the last panel, we had a lady named Beck Mack, and uh, she's an arts commentator, and she uh, does amazing work with her business, Pops Art, about bringing attention to the arts. Uh, and, you know, we were talking about how, you know, within business, you know, it's very sport-orientated and very alcohol-orientated. You know, go to a box at the, you know, the cricket or go to the state of origin or whatever, but 
you know, the, um, the arts doesn't get nearly the attention from business that um, um, the sports do. And one, one of her things that she's involved with is working with uh, local councils about creating these cultural hubs that bring community together. So, you know, that would be an example. You know, they've created a cultural hub that brings community. It's around all various types of art. I had a look at their uh, uh, website before I came in because as soon as uh, Ian said it's about rock, it's like, oh, they had Neil Finn Pally there, so I was very excited. <laughs> um, you know, and so it's people bring people back into the community and engaging in stuff that uh, uh, creates cultural identity and creates yeah. memories and fascinating, you know, yeah. uh, really um, amazing. Uh, uh, you know, these things happen and yeah. you kind of, if you're not involved in it, you just think they happen without any sort of preconceived yeah. plan, but there's actually a big high degree of strategy <clears> Which is why it. some organisations have a theme, have a theme song to support their brand and position and identity and, you know. I think it ties into, it's like we're almost getting back to a, almost a quasi-Renaissance period. Yeah. And that is going to stimulate, I think, in turn, the, the shift from, you know, corporate structures. So that whole innovation, creativity, it's, it's, it's all opening up the different yeah. creativity centres of the, the brain. And I think that that will be in conjunction with local community micro moments. So it's all of the, all about mm. personal experience, really, I guess, at the end of the day. Well, you can see it with the well, new... Well, 20 years younger. Experience it all, you know. All the, um, the tech startups and um, all of that that is occurring at the moment just doesn't fit comfortably with... Uh, many aspects of the corporate model so mm. people are going to find their own new paths forward I think yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. hence the rise of entrepreneurship as we talked about before and yeah, yeah. mind you as soon as we hit singularity none of it will matter anyway and, uh, you think you, we will? I, are you familiar with this term singularity? hit me with singularity hit me with it All right, so, <laughs> uh, singularity so in artificial intelligence there is specific artificial for example, teaching a computer to become really, really good at chess. And eventually the computer becomes so good that it can beat any human grand master chess player. Or, you know, uh, uh, it's around a very specific task, artificial intelligence becoming much, much better than the human brain. Then there's this thing called general artificial intelligence, which is where in you know they, it's, they create artificial intelligence that's just good at general problem solving, uh, and uh, becomes to the point where once all improvements in artificial intelligence, we've got some gr groovy drumming going on outside. Yeah, I think so. yeah, I was wondering. Yeah, I, feel like I was wondering if you had like something it. in your back pocket. Uh, there. <laughs> <laughs> so. Um, uh, all improvements in artificial intelligence uh, are largely driven currently by a program or a man, right? A man mm. or woman. Mm. Um, but once a computer can program itself to be better, mm. then the escalation in artificial intelligence will be immediate and massive to the point that human beings largely will be redundant. You know, and they talk about how um, that could go really, really well for human beings, or that could go really, really badly for human beings. Hang on one sec. And uh, I was just listening to a podcast the other day, and they had this dude on who's like the head of artificial, the top artificial intelligence guy in the world, 
and he said five to 30 years. Yeah. Wow. See, I'm incorporating artificial intelligence into to clients' regimes already. Right. Love it. But I just think it's going to go really, really well. So with the, all my studies the eternal in... optimist, oh, Natasha. Yeah, all my studies in I've metaphysical told. psychology and conscious <laughs> business ethics, artificial intelligence, I believe, and if you look at it in, in conjunction and simultaneously with that Renaissance period, the creativity, bringing back metaphor into and stories Reminds into me society. of the movie Terminator for some reason. Well, that's anyway. a bad it's <laughs> going, that's a bad No, it's, going to, it's actually going to stimulate humans right. to... Uh, access parts of their brain that they've never been able to access before. Well, because That's they're what too I think. busy working 60 hours a week Correct. dealing with import, urgent but not important work. Correct. Yes, and for and a good paycheck. On the, the good side of the coin is that it will enable human beings to have more leisure time and explore the arts more and philosophy more and, and so on and so forth. Or it could end up like Terminator. Yeah, I think intuition, or I think, you know, we, the emotional side of all that's going to take a bit, you know, five to 30, I think, the th you know, five might be in terms of the basic cognitive process, but, yeah. you know, I'd like to think anyway, humans stand half a chance of, you know, on that emotional side of the equation. But in practical terms, it's it's bound to be a mix of both, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. yeah. Well, they're it, talking it, about potential sort of cyborg type, you know, um, meshing and you know they're, they're talking about the ability to be able to download your entire mind onto the cloud and so you exist on the cloud there, there's all kinds of stuff being talked about the matrix and, um, comes to mind that you know mm. somebody like me i think is just so far-fetched mm. but you've got guys like elon musk and you know the top 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 brains who are literally scared spitless of ai now they are so worried about it um but, you know, it's an uh, irreversible force. I love it. Yeah. I think embrace it. Oh, me too. I think Absolutely. It's awesome. I love I think it. I think humans, we've had our time. Mm. You know, time for the next evolution. Well, the, you know, I have to put a plug in for tennis here. That You know, Australian Open, we're going to be experimenting with electronic lines this year. So, right. you know. So that takes away the whole John Mack. So potentially, you know, potentially, you know, in some of these, you know, highly competitive environments we can get the technology working for us right i feel for these lines people i really oh, do sure. so during during the week there was a couple of articles that came out about uh debunking this fear based stuff about how the artificial intelligence revolution was going to lead to all these job losses and oh, yeah. now they're saying not so likely but if you take a practical example like the open What's what's the electronic lines process going to mean for the ball children? Yeah, yeah, well, the linesmen. Yeah, there's a great documentary on um, uh, YouTube. It's called "Humans Need Not Apply," and it talked about how um, uh, artificial intelligence is going to have this massive impact on employment. And so, when uh, we were largely an agricultural society. And then, you know, farming became more automated. You know, they got plows and tractors and stuff like that. Um, the low-skilled uh, farm um, workers moved into the city and they got jobs working in factories. Um, when the factories became more automated, the low-skilled uh, people moved into uh, being a coffee barista or, or being doing low-end administration type work and stuff. But 
the um, now the next wave of um, industrialization automated um, uh, means that well where do these people go you know you can't take 45 percent of the workforce and suddenly train all of them to be um, uh, uh, computer programs, programs right yeah. and that is the issue you know uh, I think they're expecting nine million people who drive vehicles in America to be made redundant this year with driverless car technology. Mm. And these people can drive a car. So how do you retrain that workforce? So it's not, um, uh, it, they're talking about um, industries, for example, like law. 45% of people who currently work in the law won't work in the law in five years time. Because a lot of the work that they do, which is looking up prior case examples and What's all they call mm. that research? There's Precedence. Precedence yeah. and so on. We'll all just get done by this super yeah, quicker. Mm. Yeah. computer. Mm. Um, it'll get to the point where you'll go in and you'll go, describe my case, you'll describe it, and the computer will go, based on all the precedents, and you've got a 23% chance of winning this case, drop it. And that does hundreds of lawyers out of work. Um, so it's affecting you know, industries. You've now got uh, radiologists where you get scanned, you have an x-ray in Australia, it, the x-ray gets examined in India by artificial yeah. intelligence. Yeah. You know, it's... That's happening now. It's yeah. Yeah. On. yeah. Um, so much opportunity for innovation. Yeah, that, for sure. But yeah. that needs to be unpacked a little bit, doesn't it? Yeah. There's, there's a huge retraining, reskilling, reorienting aspect. But mm. the, if I read these articles during the week, uh, earlier in the week correctly, they're really saying there are going to be new complementary areas that are going to open up and the, there'll be two issues. One will be retraining the people who are displaced and the other is dealing with the mismatch between the new skills that are required mm. and the skills that mm. are evident. So it's, again, it's not um, all good or all bad. There's going to be good yeah. things that come out of this, yeah. and there are going to be some pretty big issues. Yes, that have absolutely. To be and, the other, and the other side. It's not of going to be the end of the world. No. The other side. Well, of, like, well, it might no, be. it's not. Yeah. It's not going to be <laughs> the end. No. Well, I can't help but think uh, I heard a, a speaker recently um, talk about this in relation to the trust equation when it comes to intelligence. You know, that, um, and she, and this particular lady, um, quoted the example of. Um, young baby dolls that you know bots have bots in them to um, hear and interpret um, what young children are saying to it that parents may not be able to gain and as a result run algorithms to be able to clearly market to these kids as they evolve and get older and she described a particular scenario not too far into our future which really resonated with me where she can see her daughter coming home one day saying to her mum um, I trust my avatar boyfriend more than my real boyfriend is that a problem because he's more consistent with his behavior he does what he says he's going to do and he's more reliable despite the fact that we have no or very little visibility of who's controlling the algorithms mm. behind these artificial well, the first thing I've been asking is why she got two boyfriends. Well, <laughs> 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 but that, that, that really resonated with me because yeah. we interpret trust 
today still, in my view, as consistency, and we don't trust organisations. We don't. We're all one-on-one -on -one connected now, so we don't, we don't trust, trust organisations. We don't trust government. We don't. Yeah. Tr so therefore, who do we trust? We trust this bullshit that we get out of. Sorry, I've had two glasses of wine, so now I'm. Sorry, um, let it rip. Let it rip. Ian, but, Ian will let it rip. Soon. You know. Um, <laughs> Drop a few cuss words. You know. <laughs> But yet we'll trust this consistency of this bloody robot that's run by someone yeah. we have no the, idea yeah. whose algorithms we have no, you know, like, this hello. Is, this is the beauty of experience. So Correct. Having, yes. a, having connection and having experience. So I think we're going to do a whole 360-degree turnaround. So we will do the artificial... I mean, I'm impl as I said, I'm implementing artificial intelligence already in with my clients. Yeah. It's already happening. Yeah. It's, um, you know, we're, we're, we're doing the bots, etc. It's going really well. Not replacing jobs, but it's enhancing the micro-moments and experience. So, but there's, there is this thing called human connection, and we all feel it. We all see it. It's a little bit matri matrixy. So, but we all know it's there. So, um, and it's that connection. And, and it, it is who can really make true connection, that empathetic connection with that person. So, um, yes, the bots can give the information, absolutely. But the bots can give potentially better information than the human recall, like the, yeah. uh, in terms of speed. Yeah. However, what the bots can't replace is that connection yeah. and the ability to empathise, which is what you, you talked about earlier, Michael, mm. and, and I think that's where we're going to win. And, and that's what you know, you're talking about, Ian, too, when you, you're talking about culture and, and the, the different uh, scenarios of empathising and, and cults and, and, and goddesses. It's all stuff that, that our neurology relates to, um, yeah, just from a, a psychology point mm, of view. Mm. Um, but also we feel stuff. So, Natasha, what, ex what advice would you be giving young kids in terms of studying for their future careers? Where well, would you be focusing? the first thing I would say is talk to one of my mentors, who is Tony Ryan, um, who just wrote a beautiful book on, uh, uh, you know, about learning, and he's a, a learning futurist. So I, I wouldn't be, uh, I wouldn't have the ability to give any advice, but he certainly does, and uh, I think, uh, you know, his message is the the future is wonderful up ahead, and it's a really positive message, and. Um, yeah, so I would say go with the, the experts, which is niche and specialisation, which I love as well. Mm, okay. <laughs> so we'll all be fine. We're all going to be fantastic. Not, not fine, we're going to be fantastic. Okay. But yeah. yeah just, to, just to perhaps be a bit provocative about that. Please do. There's a, there's a whole range of connections to it, isn't yes. there? You know, we, we are probably at one end of the connection spectrum, yes. the, the four of us sitting here, and then there are other people who... Uh, are more connected with their dog or cat than they are with their neighbours, as an example. Mm -hmm. And then yes. there's stories coming out about people being more connected to their robot than mm. than they expect to be yes. to anybody else. So yes. there'll be a whole range of things people. Yes, absolutely. So. I mean, yeah, ab absolutely. But I think it will come full circle. Right. Is the is is where I think it will will happen so it will there will be a disconnect just similar to what Richard was saying about social media and Facebook and, and people going oh everything's great in your world so no one talks about the world you know it's nothing it, authentic it's yeah it's, deep, it's not it's, it's not authentic it's but people yeah. are actually seeking that out as a human being mm. we want genuine authentic connection yeah 
um, and we are seeking that out, yeah. um, whether that be on, on a Facebook platform or we're seeking it out wherever we think we can. Um, but at the end of the day, when we can make those real connections, I think that's where I think that's where the whole of society and um, and it's going to have to save the young kids because the suicide rate is just uh, alarmingly high as a result, in my view, of this um, you know the downside of this drug that people get from social media, yeah, yeah, believing well, that oh, you know I get so many likes, I'm a good person mm. and and lack the social skills to have meaningful relationships and connections and uh, it's a real it's a real downside of technology in my view. Yeah. yeah. I'd like to talk about these little green scooters that are going around town. Oh. Okay. Yeah. Oh. They've been out for a I have a work colleague who's had a serious injury out of using one. <laughs> Already? <laughs> Already. Wow. Fabulous. In fact, I heard last night oh, something I got killed on one. What? I, I really? don't know that to be true. Wow. But, you know, New Zealand, like, like, New Zealand had a pretty ordinary track record right. of a lot of people getting injured. So. We were talking the other night about the business model, and so I saw one, and I went, ah, oh, that looks awesome. So I immediately downloaded the app. I immediately put $20 credit in it, and yet I haven't ridden one. Mm-hmm. You think about all of the people who have done that, and so they have all this money for free, right, that they can do whatever they want with. Um, and then the other thing I think about is, I mean, don't get me wrong, I'm a fatty. I need to sort that out next year. But um, it used to be that you'd, you'd go out of your office and you'd have to walk five blocks to meet your colleague or supplier or whatever it might be. That was at least a little bit of exercise. Now people can just get a jump on a scooter. What's that going to do for, you know, business health? Just to yes. add to the confusion of it all, yes. I, I read during the week that Brisbane City Council are now thinking on the basis of the Lyme experience already that they're going to put electric um, motors on all of the the yellow bikes as well. Oh, oh okay, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. Lyme do those too. I, think. I personally, first time I've heard that, but personally, oh, that's a better idea and get rid of these scooters. So, yeah. You know, I can just see these scooters being a disaster, absolute disaster. 27 kilometres an hour, pedestrians. I can see that's going to. Is gonna, that how fast they go? Yeah, mm. that's going oh, to be. gonna limited to ten. They can't go on the road unless they're on the road for a short period of time to change whatever. Yeah. Um, so you put w- people walking with a twenty-seven kilometre an hour, th- anything, is a disaster I waiting think to happen. What's a sherbet specifically? <laughs> An alcoholic beverage. Right. Thank you. And I don't know about you, but um, have you used a scooter? Like w- we grew up with bicycles, yes. And maybe scooters with thicker wheels and whatever, but these yeah. little scooter things, a lot of us have never ridden. Ridden. Yeah. And now, we believe we can just get on this thing. Well, it's just like playing tennis. You'll be right. You're just like playing. Yeah. No wonder there's been <laughs> so many injuries. So many injuries. It's an absolute disaster looking for somewhere to happen, in my view. And then I was. Somebody mentioned to me last night. They were told that they Google or whoever whatever, and collecting all the data about where the people go and how they use it and so on to go into some huge data lake. And I was thinking, well, what's the value of that? Is there what's value? the value of big data? I know what's the value of big data per se, yeah. but I suppose if Ian starts to use one of these, because it's at, on his phone, so it's on his app, so they can see, oh, okay, Ian got, he left the Brisbane Club and he got the scooter down to blah, 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 and he was there for 27 minutes and then he went there. There's got to be value. I Absolutely. don't really know what it is, but 
Um, it, it, it's mapping out what people are doing. So right. it's, it's, it's part of the customer journey. Like right. And so what can be happening along the way or why is he doing that? What services can that be replaced with? I saw a with? the other day with two of them on it. That's ambitious. That'd confuse the data mappers. That's ambitious. You to get on one, Ian? Um, I've thought about it. Yeah. 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 I thought if I was to do it, I'd come in on a Sunday to start with. <laughs> and there's like the tenth of the number of people here. Well, I'm just very impressed with where they end up. Yeah. Honestly. Where do they end up? Absolutely anywhere. Yeah. And I'm very impressed with that. Wow. Right? Someone just, okay, they've just ended up here. Yeah. Like. It's amazing. Well, the deal is they have scooter friends, whatever they're called, who are paid to go around at night, pick them up, put them in their cars, take them home, charge them, and then put them back on the street in the morning. I'm told they're called harvesters. Harvesters, right. And then they reduce the the scooter by plugging it into their PowerPoint and spending three cents of their own electricity. And I think they get something like $7 for taking it to the place that it next needs to be dropped off it. I think that's that's all good. And the popularity of it, though, is so Mm. exciting. It is. Just so So you're excited about it? Well, I think it's great on balance, yeah. yeah. If they can manage the safety issues. Right. What about the poor Uber drivers? Who may no longer get fares. Well, what about they taxi I think they're fine. I was I caught an Uber on the way here and he was telling me about how he caught a um, uh, had to park at South Bank for to go to an appointment. He's he's a corporate, interestingly. And then he he caught a, a line right. over to his appointment in South Bank, and he thought it was fantastic as oh. opposed to an Uber. So I don't think Uber drivers make a lot of money by uh, going <coughs> a very very short distance. Yeah. So I think um, I think it's a wonderful compliment. Ah, okay. Mm. And it kind of leads into this whole. Uh, you know, complete reconsideration of industries. Yeah. I, I, I love the concept of, you know, in innovation, trying new models, uh, fail quickly and change. Absolutely. Abs- you, know, you know, New Zealand's experience, you know, the, um, as I understand it from um, what I've heard, you know, the emergency wards of a lot of hospitals, there was a, you know, there's a lot of people injured. So we're going to go through the same thing. I dare say that'll help inform how we might do it different, but I, I love the, the fact that it's we're, 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 we're attempting something mm. a bit different, but you know, absolutely. You know, um, yeah, that that brings in a whole, in my view, a whole view of design of cities and the pedestrians getting more right of way, and that's there's a whole swing to you know how that's going to work these days. You know, cars in cities in Australia, unlike I think Europe, have had proportionally more right away so that's going to that balance is going to change i think you know 40 k's an hour you know cross walks you know pedestrians you know cross at once uh, as we only see in major areas will be more and more the you know but hey cities need to bring back more life so i I'm, i can see that's going to be good what are some of the other innovations in business that you see in inside you I just, I, I think it brings the conversation around to what you were saying before, Michael. It, it's back to basics. Right. So I think the innovation is, and as you were talking about too, Ian, like it, it, it's back to basics 
for everything. Like we need to start at square one. I think to really reinvent ourselves, we really need to go back to square one, which is potentially the the Greek Grecian times. Yeah. So what did they get right? And and we we look at that. So that's what what excites me is mm-hmm. that if we go through this back to basics period and a mm-hmm. renaissance creativity period. Um, artificial intelligence, which, which takes the ju- drudgery away, which you were talking about before, and um, you know, and we're doing that already in, in Brisbane. So, uh, with professional services industries, we're using bots. So, I just think that's very, very exciting. Mm. Yeah. Did you see that Pauline Hanson quote in the last week after the kids all came out about climate change, and? Uh, I, I, it was attributed to her. I don't know if she actually said it because it sounds a bit too intelligent. But uh, <laughs> she was saying it's all very well for you to be out there, you know, um, but you are the people who are on uh, electronics all day. You're the people who demand the latest T computer, Xbox, the latest phone, the latest. This. You are the generation who don't walk or ride your bike to school, you get driven to school. And, and just it went boom, 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 boom. And as I read that, and I thought about my own kids, mm. and I went, absolutely, that is a massive consumer of, you know, essentially coal to yep. create these products and services and travel, you know, transportation and so on. So basically, it, to paraphrase her, it was shut the hell up, you know. Uh, you, you guys are the consumers, and yet, um, isn't this a bit hypocritical? Did you see that? I didn't see it, but but the, the other side of it is that kids are going to get more and more demanding of action and be prepared to do things, I think, that, that are consistent with Look with at the, their the rallies, yeah, yeah, that we've just had recently. But, um, would, I, I, would they be prepared, OK, well, when I was a kid, you know, it would be the family holiday was an hour drive to the Gold Coast and say, so, stay in some crappy motel. It wasn't fly anywhere. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, there was certainly no uh, uh, Xboxes and iPhone Xs and a plasma TV in every bedroom. And you know, look at the way that education is delivered now, and it's you know very technology. It was completely different. You know, so uh, kids are wanting to take action, which I completely agree mm. with and support. Um, but is there, you know, are they going to prepare? Are they going to accept the consequences of, you know? what the alternative is? Uh, <coughs> if, if there's enough time, I think it'll work out. So, you know, I don't know whether you've seen it, but there's a, a new development that's come out and it's just, just started to be advertised now in some of the technical journals about a new form of energy based on silicon something or other. I don't understand wow. that. But <laughs> the promise of that is that it will be able to produce a hundred million times the amount of energy that we get from coal at the moment um, in a very, very efficient way that doesn't consume, uh, doesn't consume carbon, uh, isn't radioactive, you know, has all, all these benefits. So there, there's always, sol- to come back to your point, Natasha, there's always solutions coming along. Yeah. I think the, the question about global warming and climate change and all that is have we got enough time mm. to get some of these things in place before we actually do something that mm. really does damage us. Mm. Yep. Interesting. Yep. What do you think, Mark? Are you a sceptic or a supporter? 
No, I support her. I've, I've got young kids. I started a family a bit later in my life, and um, I tell you what, all I can say is thank goodness for my kids that I did, because I'm a whole thank lot goodness. that I did start later in life, right. because the person I am now is, uh, I think, a whole lot more equipped to be able to deal with their upbringing than I would have otherwise younger. Um, um, yeah, it, you know, I'm, uh, you know, we all have our own philosophies and whatnot but you know once a year I write a personal letter to my two boys around being their own character um, and dealing with the world in you know really just trying to promote their own values and staying true to their own compass and it is a little bit back to basics mm. but I, I I don't know I, I really make that effort because my fear is that through the downsides of technology, they lose their own identity, they lose their own real purpose of life. And, and um, my kids are still relatively young and therefore still somewhat influential. I've still got some influence over there. So do you give yeah, them the, the letter at the time or is this something that they save up till they turn 18? No, once a year I, I adapt a personalised letter to each of them based on, you know, things like, you know, this is what you expect personally you know you'll have more body hair or your voice will do this and you know whatever oh, this, this is what you expect in the year ahead um but equally um what That's i'm lovely. so what i'm so proud of in terms of their own behavior around being true to themselves do you, do you don't on their birthday um christmas each okay. year yeah That's a lovely christmas. i think that should mm. be a ritual well thank you That's yeah a lovely thing, they isn't it? they actually save it in they've got a little um wooden chest next to their bed for their money chest or whatever put their right. coins and and they put these letters in it and um you know i uh, where did i get the idea from a, a lady who um left she had terminal cancer and she left her own perfume and letter and stuff for, for her kids when she was passing and um and i thought geez you know that can that can happen any time. Oh, for sure. And, True. And uh, so why not start each year now? And, and one of the things that I'm... One of my values, I grew up, you know, resisting alcohol or, and, and not having the mates that I did because... And smoking because, you know, when I was young, unless you smoked and drunk, you weren't part of the team. And so I was very much alienated from that sort of peer group. Um, and so, you know, it's driven my personal values to say, you know what... Um, true friends will be friends and you don't have to be influenced so much with that peer group and my fear these days back to my uh, other comment about facebook and the artificial um, stuff you get from social media about this shallowness of belonging is um you know at the end of the day i just hope they have the resilience of their own character to do what, what is best and they don't have to do everything their peers particularly um, influence them to do to uh, to be belonging, you know, to sense a, a sense of belonging. And um, anyway, so they, uh, you know, we all have our own values as parents. But um, could I tell a story that comes at this please. same point from another direction? So uh, I guess we're all graduates from university at one stage or another, mm. and we've all been to graduation ceremonies. Yes. You've all experienced the joy of having the um, invited guest deliver some kind of... Motivational um, sort of... Some talk. I, I graduated twice. 
can't remember anything about the graduation at all. <laughs> but Anne was in the drinking, smoking scene. <coughs> no, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> can't imagine that. <laughs> but, but my wife graduated the year we got married, and she was at the graduation ceremony at the University of Wollongong, and somehow or other they had the privilege of having a guy that you may recall called Professor Manning Clark, who was a wonderful historian, highly regarded guy uh, at that stage he was probably in his late 60s and Clark gave this talk that I can remember not word for word but that central the core of it was uh, so this is 1976 and he was looking 10-15 years ahead and he said in the 80s there's going to come a time when the values of Australian society are going to have a tectonic shift mm and there's going to be changes in terms of people's reliance on religion for values and social uh, groups and uh, organisations and it's, it's all going to change. And he said it's going to be like a tidal wave and uh, the challenge that he put out to the graduates who were there and the, and the families was uh, find something that you can put as a stake in the ground that will anchor you so that when this tidal wave of change comes you'll have something that you can hang on to and I remember this so strongly and vividly because uh, and this is something I've tried to get across to my kids Mm -hmm. is that you've got to have something that you can rely on not like it's a crutch but it's something that is solid and gives you a central point it's your and rock, your foundation. What, yes, there's another way of describing it. Or, uh, is it somebody or other, George, talks about you know, your true north? Yeah. Yes. It became a, a, a concept George later Costanza. on. George Costanza. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Somebody deep Seinfeld. like George. Yeah. 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 Not that there's anything so wrong yours? about that. Oh, I, I, I think it's about care. Um, the, the care. Se- care, C-A-R-E. Right. I, I think that... Uh, there are two ways of looking at the world. One is through a lens of um, care and the other one is through a lens of fear. And if we choose to look at the world through the lens of fear and all the things that go with that, doubts and concerns and worries and troubles and all the rest of it, we end up with a certain life. And if we look at life through uh, care or that dreadful L word that will probably get bleeped out of this um, now, love. Love. Um, uh, it's a terrible word to use in organisational settings, isn't it? People just can't get their heads around actually <laughs> letting that fall from their lips. Yeah, but well, it's a shame, really, but anyway. Yeah, but, you know, if, if we live our lives through a lens of care, uh, we have a different experience of life to one lived through fear. Yeah, there's a... In my experience, though, what's required to run a and be successful in business, unfortunately, um, there's not a high correlation with care. Um, still, there is about delusional superiority, about limited empathy, about uh, you know really having a high sense of self and being a narcissist. Yeah, well, <laughs> without mentioning the word, but uh, yeah, the you know, yeah, N word with no G's. <laughs> which is a rule which today is still so what do you think about that Michael I love it, I, well I love the care I love mm. the, which is why personally I 
had a career in corporates and struggled because it really wasn't a highly caring type environment. But, you know, if financially, if financial outcomes were your motivator, um, there's a higher correlation in my experience still to the non-care philosophies. So what what do you think it would take for organisations to embrace the word love? Oh, that's a really good question. I don't say much, but when I do, it's awesome. <laughs> could I, could so I, humble. Could I just say, and I want to pick up on uh, a thing that um, that Ian mentioned about uh, his opportunity in Perth with that group, and you know, being able to have a bit of a mantra or an agreement to call behaviour around values. Um, to me, can I just say, in in a number of organisations, whether you call it a team charter or whether you call it a sense of greater values or purpose, it already is happening. They may not call it love, but there is pockets of, you know what, in our group, in our environment, you know, whether it's the benefit of, you know, Ian's experience coming in or whatever, um, it already exists. Um, Compliance, governance kills the whole, a lot of it, but, um, yeah. Can I just comment on that? This is why I love working in SME. I know, I just mentioned that L word, oh my gosh. Um, But I do... I do really, really love working in SME land and um, yeah. uh, be, because they have the freedom and flexibility to demonstrate the, the, the care word. Yeah. So yeah. Um, uh, just to give you an example, I had a, um, uh, one, of, one of my clients who over the years has become a good friend and a trusted advisor and also um, I've had the privilege of having them as an accountant because they specialise. Uh, see, uh, but um, anyway, uh, I uh, in one of my entities, they saved me twenty thousand dollars. The company saved me twenty thousand dollars in tax in in one entity. Wow! And um, so I got this beautiful little email saying, uh, "So we've saved you twenty thousand. It was twenty thousand two hundred and forty dollars um, in this entity. Uh, what what will that do for you?" So what impact will that have on your life? And so I wrote back, well, that'll help just reinvest in my business. Great. And then they said, we have donated on your behalf clean water for 20,240 people. What impact does that have on your life? And I... Wow. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes. And I just went... Wow. So the the, the twenty thousand didn't have wasn't as impactful as the clean water for yeah. twenty thousand two hundred and forty people, but that was that really gave me the wow factor. Yeah. I just went That's impressive. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's where that you know, business SMEs have the opportunity to make an impact in terms of connection, innovation in what they do. So so in terms of my customer experience and my journey, that micro moment was an email that literally was a form that I filled out and took me maybe three minutes to complete. As a micro moment, the impact of that was massive. So, but it took innovation and thought well, I, on I, his behalf. His I feel the need. I feel the it. need right at this moment. I um, I, I wrote a little um, article on what would be the five things that corporates can learn from SMEs. 
So I thought I might share those with you. Yes, please. And you might, and you might either, you know, challenge them, add to them, or whatever. But um, the five things that I came up with, given that I do a lot of work in the SME space, having a previous life in corporate, um, in any order. But one, um, what corporates can learn from SMEs would be to utilise more intuition. SMEs are not flash on process, although they need it more. Um, corporates process themselves where in, in, intuition really isn't trusted to the point yep. where you know executives in their private space in their own time have intuition but trying to incorporate it into their organisations is somewhat challenging. So that's one, I think. Uh, another is, is what we call this more purposeful visionary leadership every day, not the annual workshop or not the, you know, here's the new vision of the corporation. Whereas SMEs, often, every day it's about, you know, because they're so passionate and their vision is so clear, it makes it a bit easier. But anyway, there's a second one for you. Um, that's two. Three, um, what I call this enabling creativity. Um, you know, my understanding of being creative is you have to be prepared to be wrong in order to be creative. You need to be prepared to make a mistake in order to be creative, which is why kids are so creative. I oh, yeah, made a mistake, move on, and change. Um, SMEs can move on, can change, can be Absolutely, more creative. they're agile. So this whole creativity piece is really, really a challenge for the bigger corporates who don't tolerate mistakes. Mm. But yet, geez, how in the hell can you be creative? Um, so that's what's at three. Number four, um, execute now like <laughs> let's not talk about it anymore <laughs> we've talked about it enough let's get on with it we're an SME we've had a conversation we're doing it what do you mean we're doing it we can do it right now and we can file quicker move or we can actually inform so it's you know ready fire aim sort of yeah, stuff love that you book. know which I love that yeah zero to a hundred million yeah. no time flat. <laughs> so true it is so true yeah um, and last but not least of course is what I call the which we've already talked about, of course, is the authentic values. Yeah. Not the ones that are shiny and live on the, you know, on the walls, but yeah. the authentic piece of what's really going to drive us moving forward. Mm. Enough aspiration in it for it to move, but um, be authentic enough for it to be real. So, mm. there you go. There's five. Mm. It's really good. Brilliant. I don't know if it helps. But uh, can I just little put out a little challenge? Yeah, go. So, Ian. <laughs> I want your article as well. <laughs> I want to see your article published on um, the, the, the Greek, uh, yes, Greek metaphors. Exactly. So I, I really would love to see an article on that yeah, and how yep. that relates to culture. Yep. So. Zeus, <coughs> Athena. Um, Dionysus. Dionysus. Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. 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 Looking forward <laughs> to that. <laughs> you know, the thing about it is, and, you know, I'm a small business owner and... Uh, I hang out with medium to large corporates professionally, but I hang out with small business owners, you know, in terms of where I get coached as an owner and, and so on and so forth. And a lot of the things that you talk about, about small enterprise, the reality is I would suggest the vast majority of small enterprises don't do that. You know, they're there because they've basically bought themselves a job. They don't have clarity of vision. You know, they 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 uh, can often, um, you know, hesitate in making decision making because they've got fear of making commitments. 
practice is a lot of what you say is true of the best of small business. But there's the other side of it, yeah, yeah. The bulk of small business would be um, very different, I'd say. Yeah, I I think um, I I, I disagree with that because I, I know in Brisbane there are some really amazing, innovative Business owners that are oh, I'm SMEs, not that right, yeah, but as a percentage of overall small May, business maybe, and they'll they'll you know natural selection, sure, they'll like the horse I think, and I think, cart. I think the, I think the go, difference but, is, I think yeah. the first phase. I think yeah. the difference is the first phase is you buy yourself a job, so you don't actually have a business. Yeah. You, you've got a job with overheads, um, and you know that because the minute you go away for a holiday, it all goes to shit. So. Um, you know, so the first phase is you buy a job with overheads. The next is you actually have a business running, and and a business that runs to me has a, a greater a, a, what is it? A greater sense of separation from the owner or owners from that of what the business is doing. Um, but I, I I get what you're saying, Richard. A lot yeah. of a lot of people operate through a business, but they are themselves their own worst yeah, enemy. I think you'll find that there is a, a significant. Uh, uprising of people who aren't the solopreneurs that are just buying themselves a job. They're, they're, they're intelligent people that see an opportunity in the marketplace. They're entrepreneurs, they're intrapreneurs, they might be solopreneurs. Uh, but they see that space and then they, they will go, okay, I'm, I'm going to go for this. So they might not be the market domination like an Uber, but they may be like a, a, a local Uber or something like that. So um, for example, when we're looking at the, the financial services industry, it could be like a, a, a boutique CBA, for example, or yeah. you know, where, but where the services aren't so differentiated and they're not trying to do everything for everyone. They want a niche, they want to specialise, they want to be local, they want to work with their local community. So I think you'll find, you know, 2019, like for the next five years, you'll find these businesses come up where they're not... The, the entrants are much higher level than what the entrants were over the last 10 years. Yeah, you know, the traditional right. small business owners thinking, oh, I don't like my job, so I'm just going to get out. They're, they're much more intelligent. They're much more... Willing to have yeah. advice taken yeah. on. A lot more yeah. resources available. Absolutely more resources and, and also more resourceful themselves. Yeah. So can, I, can I suggest something that goes to that resources? Sure. In, in my little model of love and fear. No, care and fear, you don't say love. Care and fear, okay. <laughs> like, like many academic models, it's a, it's a two-dimensional model and nothing exists in reality yeah. in two dimensions. So uh, when I think about these sort of things, I'm always thinking for a, the possibility of a third or a fourth or a something yeah. dimension. So a third dimension that occurs to me out of what you've both been talking about in terms of this range of experiences. Yeah. Is a is a another L word that you mentioned before, Michael, right at the start of this. It's is leadership. So, if there's a if there's an, a dimension of leadership that operates between love and fear, then you've got the possibility of great things happening or not great things happening. You've got the possibility of uh, people actually taking action that makes a difference, or just staying buying a job with overheads. It'll only happen if leadership gets exerted, and if it doesn't, it won't. Mm. Just as an idea. Very, very wise. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Mm. So, 
to, you, you know, Michael, you mentioned before about encouraging leadership in organisations and how important that is in, mm. in developing the culture of them to come back. So one of the organisations I'm involved with is an organisation called the Leadership Foundation that creates mm. opportunities for leaders to get together in a safe environment and experience or share their experiences of what's actually going on in their lives from a leadership perspective. And I'd have to say it's one of the most um, rewarding things that I do yeah. during, during the month where yeah. we have a group of 10 people sitting around a table here in the Brisbane Club and we just talk about yeah. leadership and what is going on in people's lives. And when, when they can access what they're doing and the impact that it's making, it's, um, it's I hesitate to use the word transformational, but people really get a different experience of leadership when they share it in that way and they get to understand the impact that good leadership has on the organisations that they're leading. Yeah. So, uh, from my understanding, so you, you're connecting on a deep level and you mentioned that you didn't want to use the word transformational, but that deep level connection can be life-changing. Yeah. Really can. Yeah. Okay, Richard did um, did some really great stuff and uh, in terms of masterminding, and that was pretty pretty impactful. So yeah, you talked about breakfast, so right? Yeah, yeah, they yeah, were well, very impactful. Well, we ran five breakfasts a month for twelve CEOs, so mm. sixty CEOs a month, mm. and uh, you know, I, I I think having done that for a year and looked at what worked and what what worked well and what didn't work so well as I felt that the vast majority of participants were very reticent to take off the mask, you know. And I think that you've, you, the, tr the real value comes from people, when people get there. That's right. Yeah, you know, which is what, conditions what sounds like what you're doing. Yeah. 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 Uh, everybody's, you know, feels they've got to thump their chest and, uh, and present this amazing picture of Oh, fantastic. Even to the <coughs> point of, you know, are you getting any coaching? No, I don't need a coach. And yet I know that that CEO is being coached. I've had people on my podcast who I know are being coached because I introduced them to the coach. Oh, so has coaching been a part of your success? No, I've never been coached. Wow. And, you know, it's interesting because in sport, for example, you would never have a number one tennis player without being coached. Or a number one Formula yeah. One driver or they would have a whole team of coaches mm. and yet you, as a business person if you've got a coach it means that you know there's something wrong, wrong. is it a sign of weakness or strength yeah and and i happen to believe there's a belief system still running that's one of them you know that potentially some might see it as a, a, a you know weakness rather than a strength i think the other belief system coming back to ian's point is about um um you know i haven't i haven't i don't I can, um, I can intellectualise around this leadership stuff. I can, I've got the vocab, I can walk the talk, I think. But you know what, I have never experienced true um, values-driven, high-performance leadership because I've come from the world of management. Mm. Um, all my bosses and senior people of influence have been managerialised 
And so I've got this faith or bridge of what I think it is, but I just don't know it. And, um, and therefore, it's really, really challenging for a lot because you can intellectualise something, but unless you truly feel it, it's pretty hard to get it. Um, which is why I think a lot are still somewhat um, lost in the world of ambiguity and uncertainty because management is one of these things that should be just thrown out. It's one of these, in my view, a, a man-made thing that no longer has its place in the world, uh, particularly in business. Um, and doing what lead, and, and what Ian's uh, example is, which is a peer group, trusted environment to just sort of reset the button mm. emotionally about how I deal with things in a different way because management fails every which way, in my view. So some of that concern might come from a, a, a grand idea of what leadership really is. And, and sometimes we, yes. we want to make it mean more, more than it necessarily has and to be. it's not working, yeah. So what, what does leadership actually mean to you? Mm. Uh, to me... Um, to me, I grew up believing the task world, the plan, the strategy is prime. And for me, leadership is really just, you know, creating the environment for all more of the human spirit to come to work, mm. more of the human endeavour to be exercised in in a condition where performance is, you know, the people side is more prime than the task. So um, for me, you know, yeah, lead, uh, leadership's around that environment where everyone has a greater sense of how to contribute to the invisible. The, uh, you know, I don't want to get into all the theory because really at the end of the day, if people can be more themselves at work, and connect better as humans, human beings, not human doings, as we have heard. Yeah, um, to me, that's leadership. It's and 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 in that equation, that vision, in my view, there is no management. You know, if people need to be managed. We're running the wrong model. People need direction. That's different. But but uh, you know, I mean, when you what you're saying is like completely the antithesis of what actually happens. You know show up to work, be raw, be vulnerable, you know, that's not what goes on in business. It's like, put on your suit of armour, come to work, you know, <laughs> climb the corporate ladder, yeah. uh, screw everybody else, um, don't show any weakness or you'll get, you know, stabbed in the back. Can, can, uh, I, can I just chime in there? Like, so, if we look at leadership, and my most beautiful example of leadership that I've seen is Ian Sampson. So, oh. <laughs> Seriously, like Ian, if you're you look, looking so delighted look, to hear if this. If you look at the book, <laughs> oh you God. know, for example, Good to Grey, you, they talk about level five leadership, and one of them humility, lives, and you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Ian Sampson lives, breathes, is leadership. He works with the most incredible senior leaders around Australia, um, and the most influential. But you never hear him. Yeah. say anything and, and it, he articulated before about how he didn't want to talk about himself It was, and it's always all about everybody else apart from him and I think that to me is leadership living breathing in action like, and I think leadership to, to have that role model yeah why is that because is, it creates the environment for higher performance yeah. absolutely well it, it, it is it's someone that's it's walking their talk 
living what they're living. They're going from every end of the spectrum from the micro minutiae of customer service right through to board level and can bridge every gap in between. To me, that's true leadership. Mm. That's understanding every level. Ian, is it's been recorded. Can't get away from that. Oh, it's true. I'm you, you deserve it. Yeah. So absolutely. we're almost at the two-hour mark. Great. Believe it or not. So uh, before Boy. we sort of start to wrap it up, yeah. Is there anything that's been left off the table? Any sort of pressing issues or? Things that somebody wants to, to bring up for some conversation. Not not, a, not an issue, but um, uh, something that listeners might be intrigued about to go and have a look for themselves is uh, in the last issue of the Company Director magazine that the Institute of Company Directors put out. There was a very interesting article about directors paying more attention to middle managers. Coming back to your point, Mike, uh, and. I read it with great interest, it was written by a lady whose name I can't remember, uh, but in it she referred to a word that I'd never heard of before, and the word was sonder, S-O-N-D-E-R. Mm -hmm. Have you, you've heard it? Mm. Have you heard it? Sonder. Love the English language. So it comes from a guy who is writing a new dictionary to describe what life is like in the current experience of life that we're having and the dictionary is called the dictionary of obscure sorrows which is interesting Ooh, in itself I love it. and anyway so he's he's come up with this word called sonder and he describes sonder as being the experience that we have available to us like and I get it like a choice that when we're walking down the street or we're at work or at home or in any situation, it's the experience of being aware of all the incidental thing, uh, incidental people that make up our experience of life. So you walk mm. down the street, you see maybe that's two thousand people between here. And, <laughs> and to me, the the thing came across in the way she was describing it as an as a potentially negative experience that managers get this experience of all the problems that they have to deal with and the mm. bit parts that other people are playing in their life and all that. What I saw out of it, uh, sort of the flip side of it, is that when we live our life experiencing an awareness of all of the incidentals that make up our experience of life, that can be so enriching mm. and empowering and creative and uh, leading to new thoughts of innovation. And sure. Well, what you're really talking about is mindfulness. Mindfulness, mm -hmm. just yeah. another word for it, yeah. really. Or, so, or sonder, I understand sonder would have come from the word ponder, but where's the S come from? Uh, he doesn't explain the right. etymology yeah, of it. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, so mindfulness has been practiced by, you know, spiritual people and lay people for, you know, thousands and thousands of years, and it is really, you know, um, uh, been becoming very popular in um, the corporate space and uh, you know it's almost I mean meditation is now you go to the doctor I've got a sore toe have you, have you tried meditating you know it's at that yeah. level of you know uh, uh, 
But from a leadership point of view, it's truly being present, though, isn't it? It's it's just not yeah. seeing what you want to see. Yeah. It's truly being the, aware of who you are in the world. Uh, I, I just thought it was a great concept and I'm very grateful to the lady for having written about it and mm. um, hopefully the listeners will get something out of it too. Well, before you know it, you'll be microdosing um, magic mushrooms and having your little uh, affinity moments like all the guys in Silicon Valley do now. That's a new thing. Affinity moments. Uh, and and uh, psilocybin microdosing to get to a level of mindfulness and awareness and so on. Oh, really? Yeah, it's massive. Really? Okay. Oh, here, I, here I was thought he, thinking I was going to be progressive and this year I'm, I'm going to do ayahuasca in the Amazon instead of in Queensland. But <laughs> <laughs> I'll just be hitting tennis balls back on the tennis court. Well, it's much the same. You know, the ayahuasca yeah. ceremony, playing tennis, very equivalent. Right? Exactly. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, Ian, thank you very much for your time. Anything you'd like to add pleasure. before you wind up? No, thank you. It's been a wonderful experience. Excellent. Thank, thank you. you Likewise, thank you. It's been great. And the lovely Natasha Howie. Thank you. Always Richard. a pleasure spending time in such exalted company in such a magnificent location. Yes. With expensive wine. With as you very, very much pointed out. Very expensive wine. Very expensive wine. And uh, Worth yeah, it though. it's been a lovely time. <laughs> if, uh, we don't talk again beforehand. Merry Christmas. Thank you. And uh, I look forward Lovely. Thank you. Thank you. You too. Merry Christmas. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Arate podcast with Richard Treeks. For show notes and other resources, please visit aratepodcast.com. While you are there, you can subscribe for future episodes so you can continue your own journey towards realizing your full potential as a senior executive. And please be sure to share this and other episodes with your friends and colleagues. The Arate Podcast is brought to you by the Experts On Air Podcast Network.